We invite you, as we dive into the scripture for this morning, to turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And that can be found in your, uh, in your sanctuary Bible. On page, look at that, one, page 1,000. Wow, look at that. I can only find it now. Man, I think it'd be easier. It's Mark chapter 9. We're going to be re-reading, uh, reading verses 2 through 13. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word this morning that you reach out to us in love through your word. Holy Spirit, would you come and speak to us? Would you open our eyes and our hearts to what you might have to say? Help us to, to help me to handle your word with care and for us to, to hear your word with care as well. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when I, uh, I was chatting with a few folks before I began my sermon prep at the beginning of the week, what I was going to preach on this week, and I, I told them that I was going to be uh, preaching on the transfiguration. And the reaction uh, from several people was the same, which I found kind of interesting. It was kind of like, oh, it's kind of a, oh, transfiguration. Okay. And it kind of, uh, it caught me off guard a little bit uh, that, you know, that there's less than enthusiasm about the transfiguration. Uh, but, but, but then I got thinking, maybe we just, maybe we're like Peter, right? And we just, we don't know what to do with it exactly. It's, it's a strange word. Uh, it's a strange uh, 
uh, piece in Scripture, the, the transfiguration. But I think it's, it's a wonderful gift to us. I believe God longs to transform and uh, transfigure our imagination, our way of viewing the world through this, the, this word he's given us through the transfiguration. Um, so, uh, again, let's, let's dive in. I wanted to say a few contextual things before we, we kind of get into the, uh, the bulk of our scripture this morning. We, uh, we, we learn right off the bat, uh, Mark tells us, this is six days later, six days after. And it's important to, to, to realize that Mark noted that for a purpose and to look at why, what six days he's referring to, what, what happened six days before. Well, this was six days after Jesus told them about his impending suffering, death, and his resurrection. Um, and it, again, it's not incidental that Mark mentions this. He wants to keep us to keep that in mind before we, uh, you know, to have that in our minds before we look at the transfiguration. Um, it's as if he's saying there's a logical sequence here. So six days after Jesus told them about his suffering, death, and resurrection. Um, interesting, in that episode, Jesus had asked Peter, uh, you know, who do you say that I am? And Peter had said, you are the Christ. Um, but then Jesus goes on to tell him that the Christ must suffer and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. But then what does Peter do? Peter rebukes him for saying this. Yeah, to the point where Jesus actually tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Um, so, uh, and he goes on to say that whoever wants to be his disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. So uh, six days after this sort of really important episode in the Gospel of Mark. Then we learn, too, just contextually, that it's Peter, James, and John, Jesus' inner circle, who get the privilege to go up with Jesus up to the mountain. These are the same three uh, that got to accompany Jesus when he rose uh, the girl from the dead in Mark chapter 5. So these these folks are Jesus' inner circle. They get to see things that uh, other folks, other disciples, don't get to see. And they get to go up with Jesus alone on the mountain. Now, in Mark, we learn, we, we see uh, in chapters preceding this, that Jesus is often alone in the morning, um, in the solitude of the morning, up, often up uh, in a lonely place, up on a mountain. And so it's, it's kind of interesting that Jesus invites these disciples, his inner circle, to sort of participate in this part of his uh, secret life, if you will. And finally, just one last contextual remark is that this occurs near, you know, almost right exactly in the center of the Gospel of Mark. Um, you know, before this preceding Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ, there had kind of been this question driving Mark, at least the disciples. Um, them, you know, like it's kind of captured pretty well in Mark chapter 4, verse 41. Who then is this that even this, the wind and the sea obey? So there's this question driving Mark, who is this Jesus? What are we to make of him? And here at pretty much the center of Mark, we, we get to learn more uh, about this Jesus who is the Christ. Uh, so let's look at the transfiguration. It, it, you know, as you look at Mark 9, they jump right into it. There's not a whole lot uh, in the way of description about the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are, accompany Jesus up to the mountain and verse 2 reads, uh, there he was transfigured before them. Verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. You get the sense here that Mark sort of lacks the words to describe this awesome, dazzling 
reality. Uh, he is transfigured. You could also translate that tr- transformed. He somehow changes appearance, yet they're still able to recognize that it is Jesus. Uh, I like in Matthew's account that uh, Matthew writes that his face shone like the sun. So Jesus is, is, is glowing. He, he's dazzling. He's bright. Um, and, and, it, and it reads, right, he was transfigured before them. This is not him off in the distance doing this. This is right in front of the disciples' eyes. And I just had to wonder what, what they were thinking when this happened. I, I, sometimes I, I think there's three of them there um, so that they could kind of reassure each other that they weren't seeing things. That it wasn't just something funny that Peter ate, but they together got to experience this awesome, dazzling reality. And, and that before them is this, this awesome image. Then we learn that um, Elijah and Moses are there alongside Jesus. So not only do they see dazzling, glowing, transfigured Jesus, they get to see Elijah, Elijah and Moses up there as well. Um, it's interesting that they appear, right? I, I mean, this kind of harkens back to Moses a little bit when uh, in Exodus 34 that uh, when, when he spent time with the Lord up in Mount Sinai that he had to cover his face because he was glowing uh, because of the presence of the glory of the Lord. So it, it kind of harkens back to that a little bit. But uh, we learn that Moses and Elijah appear speaking with Jesus. And uh, th- we don't learn what they were speaking about. We don't know what kind of conversation they had. It would have been pretty, pretty awesome, I think, to hear what conversation they're having. I, sometimes I think they were just enjoying fellowship. Um, and somehow, we don't, again, we don't really know how Peter, James, and John know that it is Elijah and Moses. Uh, maybe they just, maybe it was just revealed to them uh, by God. Maybe they just kind of know. Well, in, in peeling back the significance of this, uh, it, Moses and Elijah are really important figures, as you know, from the Old Testament. Most commentators think uh, that they appear because Moses represents in his person the, the entirety of the law uh, in the Old Testament. And Elijah uh, represents in his person the entirety of the prophets. So you're, here you have Jesus uh, caught up into the story of Israel uh, through, through Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets. So Jesus here, he, uh, showing that he's the one who was foretold by the law, the one foretold by the prophets. He inhabits and fulfills the story of Israel, the Christ of the beloved. He's the one to whom the law and the prophets point. He's not just quoting them. He doesn't just point to them. They actually show up where he's at. And what an awesome thing to be revealed to the disciples. Now, now we get to the, I, I think, quite hilarious part in Scripture is Peter's response to this awesome reality of the transfigured Lord before him. Apparently, he's one of those guys that just does not like empty space and silence. He has to say something. He has to fill up the space. Um, so, and he's kind of gutsy in this regard. You, you may see, say naive, and he's that too. But anyhow, he sees glory, and he thinks tents for some reason. Let's make three tents. I don't know if you think the same way. Maybe he was thinking that... Uh, Thinking back to his lessons in the Old Testament and, and the scripture that he knew, that when there was the glory of the Lord, it needed to be tabernacled. Maybe he's thinking that. Anyhow, he says, uh, it's good for us to be up here. 
let's make some tents. <laughs> Which is great, right? I mean, I don't know what I would have said. I, uh, anyway, he, he kind of hijacks the holy moment in, in, in some ways. But then the overshadowing comes. And again, uh, for me, it's helpful to, to try to place yourself in this story as the disciples. Uh, I wonder how this felt for them. It says the cloud enveloped them. It overshadowed them. Part of me wonders if they thought they would die uh, out of this encounter, this experiment, uh, experience. Then a voice, the voice of God, saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Perhaps a revelation of the Trinity. Jesus, the son being there, of course. Uh, the cloud, uh, ancient commentators often point out, might be a, a, a sign, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And then the voice of the Father. So the three disciples caught up in the Trinitarian presence of God on the mountain. A gift, a gift to the inner circle, to those who follow Jesus, who left all to follow him, a glimpse of the king in the hidden kingdom. Confirmation that he indeed is the Christ. They see with their own eyes, they hear with their own ears, they fill in their bones that overshadowing of God that declares, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Of course, in Mark 1, in Jesus' baptism, uh, a voice came from heaven addressed to Jesus, saying, uh, you are my son with you, I am well pleased. Now, this time, it's a voice for those following him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to the beloved son foretold by the law and prophets. Don't try to contain it. Don't, you don't have to do anything yet. Just pay attention. Just be present. Heaven is breaking into earth. The veil's lifted for a glimpse. So again, uh, we, we simply learn, uh, we, we we're given confirmation in this chapter that Jesus indeed is the Christ. Yet, uh, I'm convinced if we stop there, we're not getting the full picture. I think it's really important, again, to pay attention to context where this appears. Uh, I believe we have to sort of see this, this glimpse of Jesus through the lens of Jesus' declarations of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Um, it's sandwiched. This, this episode, this transfiguration uh, event is sandwiched between Jesus' declarations that he would suffer at the hands uh, of elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Um, I, I read that uh, Mark 8 earlier about Jesus foretelling his, his death. Uh, but you see it in Mark 9.12 here too. Jesus says, Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Again, he's pointing the disciples to his death. And then in 9.31, just a few verses further down, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. He's being as plain as he knows how, saying, I am the Christ, I am as you say, but the Christ, the Son of Man, must suffer, must die, must be rejected, but he will rise three days, uh, three days later. It's if, for me, it's as if the Lord is saying, don't be confused or deny the fact that the Messiah will suffer. This does not negate the Messiah's identity. That's the big, big point here. The transfiguration event shows that Jesus' impending suffering and death and resurrection doesn't diminish his sonship, 
But in fact, that's where his sonship will be revealed fully. And this is the paradox that I think the disciples really struggle with. As in it, we see this in their conversation as they're coming down the mountain. Um, and I wonder, right, as they're coming down the mountain, that maybe they perceive that the miracle is uh, that it's not glowing all the time. You know, that, that sort of miracle of the incarnation, that they're with the Holy, the holy One right here, right in the flesh. And yet he's sort of hidden. Anyhow, they're coming down the mountain, and it's telling the disciples asked about Elijah coming first. Uh, and, and I think they're wondering how the prophecy about Elijah's, Elijah squares with Jesus' declarations that the Messiah will suffer. And they're pointing to what, for them, would have been a well-known verse, uh, a verse that they all kind of held on to with great expectation as they were suffering at the hands of Rome. And it's Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. You can turn there if you like. Uh, I'll read it. But this is, this is the prophecy, the hope that uh, I, I think a lot of first century Jews were, were hanging on to as they experienced the brutality of Roman rule. Uh, and it foretold Elijah. It's uh, Malachi 4, 5, uh, in verse 6. Uh, it reads, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children, to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So they read this and they see that Elijah the prophet is coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. See, they were looking forward to the day of the Lord. That they looked to was the day of, of, of reckoning, when Israel would be lifted up and her enemies vanquished. So they had their eyes uh, peeled for Elijah. They're looking for him. They're waiting for him. So they're trying to the piece together their understanding that uh, Elijah would restore all things, yet, yet it seems that if Elijah has come, the restoration that they're hoping for hasn't quite taken place. How do these two things square up? I think in some way they're trying uh, kind of indirectly to suggest to Jesus that your ministry shouldn't involve suffering because we know Elijah is going to restore all things. Don't you know that, Jesus? Scripture says Elijah is going to restore all things. Why, why are you talking about suffering? Well, Jesus says this in reply, verse 13. Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as is written of him. Uh, and I think right here, I think it's clear he's pointing to John the Baptist. Uh, we know that from earlier in, in Mark 1, that the language and Im- imagery su- uh, surrounding John the Baptist is all about Elijah. Uh, he had Elijah-like ministry. So Jesus is saying, uh, Elijah has come in the ministry of John. And they did everything to him they wished. We had learned earlier in, in, in Mark that uh, John the Baptist had been beheaded. Um, so he's saying, my, my suffering is not a mistake. I, I know about the prophecy. I know about Elijah. But your lens for the restoration is different than mine, he's saying. Uh, he's teaching them that the revelation of the Christ will, will not mean, again, uh, an absence of suffering. I'm really hitting on this this morning. I think it's, it's pretty key. Um, so they'll learn that the Christ will not mean an absence of suffering, but they will learn that the presence of suffering Uh, does not mean an absence of glory. Rather, it's in suffering, suffering on a cross where glory will be revealed. 
That's how restoration happens. Through Jesus' suffering, through his entering into the human mess and his rising again. But again, Jesus is driving home. There, there can't be resurrection. There can't be resurrect, uh, restoration without death. So they're, they've been given a glimpse of the glory to come, but there's still work to do. That's why Peter, you can't stay up on the mountain, Peter. There's work to do. Come down. So I'm convinced that the transfiguration event was more about a transfiguration of the disciples' minds uh, than it was just for Jesus to, to show to them his glory. He wanted to change them and transform them, their thinking of what it means for him to have glory, yet to suffer at the same time. And again, for us, I think it's, it's a similar invitation. Uh, we see Jesus' glory sandwiched in between his suffering, and it's an invitation for our thinking to be transformed. The Gospels give us a picture of a surprising, a luminous king who suffered and died for us to restore us to God. And this changes, this transfigures the way we view all of life. Because he suffered, the luminous one suffered, we know that all of life, all of the ordinary, all of the mundane can be touched by his light, can be set aglow by his presence because he's come to be like one of us, to redeem us. We begin to see possibilities instead of impossibilities. Because we don't have a king who skips over the suffering. He enters right into it. That's where he reveals his glory. I remember when my faith uh, really started to come alive in college. And I really started to see Jesus in a fresh, exciting, invigorating way. And a surprising thing happened to me. Um, I started to really appreciate nature, <laughs> creation. I started to see beauty that somehow I'd been missing all my life. It was like I was in love. And, and it, it, was like a, it was like a flower opening up. And it felt like God was embracing me through, through all the beauty that was just dripping from the world around me. My vision had been transformed from looking down at myself all the time to having my head up and seeing his glory everywhere. Ablaze with life, this creation is. And I think that's what the transfiguration uh, teaches us, that, that not only the beauty of nature can be uh, transformed, not only can we have our eyes open to his presence there, but everywhere. Because we have the king who suffered and died. And he longs for us to, to know possibility where we only see impossibility. He wants to give us his vision and his eyes. But our biggest roadblock, I think, are our good intentions. We end up trying to control Jesus in an attempt to avoid our anxiety, our fear, and our attempt to, to push through what we think we know is best. And we see this in Peter, right? We, we try to hijack holy moments. Jesus, it's good that we're here, so I'm going to take it in my own hands to make sure that we stay right here. Nowhere else. We're staying right here. Or, on the flip side, Jesus, it can't be good that, I'm, that, that we're here. I'm going to just jet out of here. I'm out of here. Let's go. You, there's no way you'd want me to stay here. Um, instead of taking to the time, taking the time to listen to the Spirit's leading, 
to listen to Jesus, the beloved son, in whatever situation that we're in. In other words, don't jump to definition about your situation without the Spirit's interpretation of it. That sounds kind of metaphysical, right? A little bit abstract. So I've been thinking just a way to spell it out a little bit easier. So we, I think uh, what we're, we're tempted to do is to, to experience life and then jump right into a reaction. So something happens and we, we immediately react to it. And Peter does this all the time. He did it in Mark 8 when, when he began to rebuke Jesus and then he gets called Satan in return uh, because he was afraid. He wants Jesus to suffer and die. But he, he also reacts when he sees Jesus' glory saying, oh, I better react to this situation and, and contain it right here and now. Both times he, he in effect, is rebuked. Um, and we, again, we often live out a reaction too. When somebody cuts us off in traffic, or angers us, or, or something at work falls flat on his face. Um, something's done to us that we don't think we deserve. We, we're prone to, like, lash out and react. Um, or even when things go well, we're, we're prone to sort of pat ourselves on the back, maybe, or bask in the glory, or assume that God's will is always on the road to our glorification. But what we get wrong is we don't take time to listen to the beloved son in whatever situation that we're in. We're trying to experience reality without Christ as our lens. We're sort of bouncing from reaction to reaction, from high to low, low to high. But again, the transfiguration offers uh, us, I think, a different glimpse at viewing the world, different way of viewing the world. So instead of ex- having experience and then jumping right into reaction, uh, we have experience, and then we pause and we listen. We listen to the beloved son. And instead of reacting, we get to respond. We get to ask, Jesus, we believe you entered in deeply to to our human situation, that you're here with us now. How are you at work right here and right now? I know you can touch this and make it ablaze with your light. So, we invite Jesus. We listen for him. We look for him. We give him our anxiety and our fear and, and our joy, and, and we trust that through the Spirit's presence with us. See, that's the thing we had. Peter, James, and John, they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. They had, the Spirit had to overshadow them to reveal. But, but we, have the, we have the Spirit. We've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We've been given it. And we're able to, to hear him, to listen to him. And the message is really simple. Listen to him. Listen to the one who is full of glory, yet he's not above suffering. Whose glory, in fact, uh, was shown in his, his leaning forward to us uh, on the cross. So operating not a, out of reaction, but out of response to who he is, to what he has done and what he'll do in the future. One way I'm trying to practice a transfigured imagination, if you will, is through prayer. Um, Julian of, of Norwich said this, Jesus is the ground of our beseeching. In other words, we go to prayer not out of a posture of, of trying to get things from God, but going asking God, what, what do you see happening in my life? 
How can I participate with you? How can I see things as you see them? I'm learning to ask God how to direct me in my prayer, how to pray for specific situations. Um, And when I began to pray this way, I I think I began to feel God's heartbeat for situations and for people and for communities. Um, And I began to pray out of a sense of, of what he might want to do there. So if I'm praying for, for someone stuck in addiction, I see a glimpse of what it would be look like, what it would look like for that person to be free and full of the life that comes from Jesus. And I see a picture of joy in that person's face. I want to see them transformed and transfigured by the light of Jesus. Or if I, I'm praying for someone who is stressed, I, I ask God for an image of what it looks like for that person to be at peace and to know the light of Christ. Or if I'm praying for someone who doesn't know Jesus, I imagine them in worship and in praise and with a smile on their face full of the joy of the Lord. But I ask for, I ask for Jesus' image. I ask for, for, for his vision for folks. I think that's what's living, it's part of, for me, what, what living with a transfigured imagination means. Living through the Lord who dazzles with light, who longs to touch all of his creation with that light. I wanted to open up our service uh, to prayer. Actually, following our service, there's, there's going to be time for prayer. Um, if you feel like you just need to have some more vision from Jesus, if you need your, tra- your imagination to, to be touched by him, let, let us pray for you. Um, let us pray that, that God would give his light to your situation. And that where there seems to be impossibility, um, help us pray that God would breathe his possibility into you. So that'll be available to you, uh, to you after the service. Our deacons uh, will be up here to pray for you. Um, let's pray together. Lord, uh, we are uh, drawn to gaze upon you and your transfigured glow, and it's mysterious and wonderful. Lord, and we're tempted, I think, to sort of want to contain you or sort of just stay there in that sort of lovely place. Lord, but we ask that um, you would show us through your light more of who you are and what it looks like uh, to follow you and to see you in all the different areas of our life. Um, we, want, we want to see uh, how you see. Uh, we want to have the hope that comes from knowing you who entered deeply into all our mess and yet revealed your glory to us on your cross, paying your life as a ransom for many, and who rose again, showing that you're victorious over sin and death. Lord, we give you, uh, again, uh, our lives, our heart today. In the name of Jesus, amen.